Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, in the coastal universe, Tyler, one of the days that lives in infamy is April 20th, 2010, mm. the day the BP Deepwater Horizon rig exploded in the Gulf of Mexico, creating one of the, or many consider, the largest environmental disaster in the history of the United States. The BP spill released estimates are uh, 4.9 million barrels of oil. 11 people were killed in this accident. It caused considerable damage to natural resources all through the Gulf of Mexico and resulted in incredible fines of about $22 billion to BP and other operators uh, involved in the project. And Tyler, that's the topic of today, the BP oil spill and what it did to the environment. We got a really cool guest on the show today. We do. And particularly, we're going to be looking at the sea floor. And uh, this is our first show, Peter. We're, we're kicking off uh, another ASPN series, and we are going to be exploring the sea floor and uh, what it is, what it is, why it's important why it is the way it is, you know, the science behind it. Also, some of the, uh, we're going to eventually, not in this show, but in shows to come, look at uh, seabed mining and uh, the issues associated with that. We did a show on the Titanic, where, uh, yep. which rests currently on the seafloor, uh, and the he legal does. implications of that. So in addition to looking at the BP oil spill, which of course happened a little over 10 years ago uh, this year, mm-hmm. uh, we will be looking at it through the very special lens of what's going on on the bottom of the ocean. Deep, deep, deep down there. Well, not so deep in some parts, very deep in others. Yeah. But before we take the deep dive, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? that it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. 
Well, the guest we want to invite and welcome to the show today, Dr. Paul Montagna, is the Endowed Chair for Ecosystems and Modeling at the Heart Research Institute at Texas A&M University in Corpus Christi Gigamaggies. Uh, Dr. Montagna is an expert in deep sea uh, biology and other topics. He has been working on the assessment of the BP oil spill essentially since it occurred in 2010. Uh, so we are thrilled, Dr. Paul Montagna. Welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast and for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Dr. Montagna, I'd like to start by learning a little bit about you. Tell us about your uh, career and how you became a leading thinker on the uh, bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. Well, um, the first thing I would tell you is that um, you know, I'm an academic, and being an academic is a little bit, I, I always thought it's a lot like being a professional baseball player or somebody or something like that because you're constantly moving around from team to team to team <laughs> until you can get a no-cut contract, which we call tenure in our business. So I started out in, in, in New York, then Boston, and then Oregon, then uh, Alaska, then back to Oregon, and South Carolina, California, and finally I've I've been living here on the Texas coast now for 30 years. It's hard to believe it's been that long, but it sure has. And, uh, you know, I've studied uh, marine ecology my whole life, uh, looking at coastlines and working in the deep seas as well. But I, I will tell you today, I'm at AM Corpus, which, and we're Islanders, we're not Aggies. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be some folks who would argue with you, but I know they Islanders. That's right. <laughs> So tell us, Paul, uh, you're, you've 30 years now on the Texas coast. I assume you've been studying the Gulf of Mexico, uh, you know, I don't want to say exclusively, but probably principally during that period of time. Is that right? Yes, that's true. Um, I, my research is focused on two major areas. One is the estuaries, the coastal bays and estuaries, and particularly uh, how uh, freshwater inflow into the bays affects primary production. And, and productivity in general, and how it builds fish. But the second big area has always been offshore oil and gas activities and effects. And that topic I've studied all over the world. I've, like I said, I worked in the Arctic Ocean. I've worked off the coast of Africa, off the coast of Asia, uh, in, in the Antarctic as well, and, and of course in the Gulf of Mexico. And you know, any place where there's offshore oil and gas, I've, I've done some deep sea work or coastal uh, work on that issue so let me you know on on the subject of your uh bio and and you know your your personal story what did you study uh say as an undergrad were you a geologist were you interested in uh the biology of marine biology what what exactly uh was the initial hook that brought you to the bottom the deepest depths of the gulf of mexico well, it's, it's funny. I didn't actually follow any particular, you know, I didn't wake up one day and say, oh, I want to be a marine biologist. It, if anything, it was quite the opposite. You know, when I was a kid, I was into uh, swimming, surfing, and, and just laying around the beach, and I was a lifeguard for a long time. And it never occurred to me that I would, I would do anything than the, other than a high school teacher so I could have all my summers off and just, you know, stay on the beach all summer long. Good planning. But, it, you know, funny thing is, so I, I majored in biology, 
And when I, uh, my senior year, I did some student teaching and I had this horrifying uh, realization, which is, gosh, I, I, I don't like being in, I don't like being a teacher in high school. <laughs> and it scared the hell out of me at first. Because <laughs> it, it had never occurred to me I'd do anything else. I just started thinking, well, now what am I going to do if I know I don't want to be a teacher? And by the way, the reason I didn't want to be a teacher was too hard. <laughs> so I, I applaud all of you who teach in public schools. I, I think that's the hardest job in the world. So I was looking for something easier to do, but <laughs> not. And, you know, I'd always wanted to move to Boston, so I thought, oh, maybe I'll go to graduate school. So, you know, the funny thing is, um, I, I really didn't have a directed plan. And when I got to graduate school, I started talking to some professors about, you know, I was, I was kind of interested in, in carbon cycling and the environments and ecosystems in general. And I started working in marshes, and from marshes, I started working offshore a little bit, and eventually I wound up in a job at Oregon State University where we're looking at the effects of offshore oil and gas on, on coastal environments. And, and that's kind of how I got to where I am today. Well, you took the lead, I think, in, among many other research scientists uh, following the BP oil spill in uh, 2010, uh, assessing the impact of, of that event uh, on the environment, on, on the seafloor. Um, to start with, would you be kind enough to to educate our audience a little bit about the deep sea, uh, the deep sea bed. Uh, why does it matter what the condition of this is way down deep? We don't see it. We can't visit it really. Uh, teach us why it matters. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Everybody knows that the earth is covered 70% with the oceans and water. Well, what that means is that, you know, 70% of the earth is deep sea habitat as well. And so it's actually the largest habitat on Earth. And that means it's a huge reservoir for diversity. It's probably where most of life on Earth actually exists. But the problem, of course, is way under the water. And, um, and we've looked at so little of it because it's so hard to get to. And as you might imagine, it's essentially out of sight, so therefore it's out of mind. In fact, um, uh, in, in spite of my early career uh, choices, uh, one of the things I love doing today is teaching, ironically, <laughs> but I teach at the college level. And one of the things I like to tell students all the time is, you know, we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the surface of the earth because most of it is covered by water and we can't see it. And so the, the bottom is very important because it's, it's just so big and it's such a reservoir diversity. Uh, all of the seafood we collect from the sea relies on basically nutrients regenerated from the bottom or critters that crawl along the bottom that the fish might go down and eat. So, yeah, explain. <clears throat> I mean, this is, you know, a full confession here, uh, ladies and gentlemen. This is our, this is my, uh, I'm getting a little education on the fly here. So, um, you know, I, understand that the oceans are big and there's a lot of volume of water so what i was telling peter in the lead up to the show is like one way to think about it is that if you're if you were able to stand on the bottom of the ocean the air if you were to compare it to like i don't know standing on the ground here as a as a terrestrial being would be the ocean and so in the same way that the air blows and moves and uh, kicks up dust and moves stuff, pollen and particulate and stuff like that. The ocean 
currents and, and, and waters do the same thing. And I would just love it if you could talk for a minute about these systems, the processes, the 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 physics of the space what is wh- what is going on down there and what is what is the seabed like 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 if if you were able to you know plop down there uh and and take some steps like neil armstrong did on the moon what would it be like well i've actually done that believe it or not i i took cruises on a, a submarine called johnson ceiling when we went all the way to the bottom we were able to take a look and see what's actually down there but it, it's basically a big old muddy mess for the most part you know, if you think about it, um, everything in the water column uh, falls to the bottom. All, all the living matter eventually dies and sinks to the bottom. And so you get a lot of, um, you, you get this deposition of, of, of very fine material that eventually becomes mud. And of course, that is what fuels the entire ocean's uh, food chains as well. But you know the, the the physics and circulation patterns in the entire global ocean is actually one of the most fascinating things that I've ever learned about personally. You know, you got the two poles where it's really cold, right? And um, it turns out cold water is dense, and so it sinks to the bottom. So the surface water is constantly sinking to the bottom, and it's sinking to the bottom primarily in the poles because that's colder. But then it kind of moves throughout the entire globe. And then when it gets to the equator, it kind of comes to the surface a little bit, but it kind of moves around all the, all the current, all the um, continents. And we, we call this the global ocean conveyor belt. And it's basically responsible for the entire climate on earth as well. So this connection between the surface waters and the uh, bottom waters and how they circulate throughout the whole globe. And by the way, that entire circuit can take up to about a thousand years so it's a wow. pretty slow process but it, it's it's also why we have the climate on earth that we do let me ask a follow-up question here and this might be a silly a silly dumb one but uh you know when i've seen like a top of is it a, a topographical map a, a relief image if you will of the seabed there's lots of topography on the seabed. It is not simply a flat, you know, like if here in Texas we have these cattle ponds, which basically look like the dimple on a golf ball. But the seabed is not like that at all. I mean, it is quite interesting. There are deep chasms. There are mountains. There are volcanoes. There are, like, things that look like rivers. And my question is, are these features... Are the I know that like a volcano can erupt in the water. That's one thing. But are these features um, from a time when these areas were exposed to the open air and uh, were eroded and, you know, the the features were created by, I I suppose it could be water, but like, you know, raining on like a mountain today that's exposed to the air and exposed to the weather in a more, um, you know, humanly perspective, (laughs) uh, uh, perceptive way. Or are these features carved and created, uh, uh, submerged? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And you're right. It, it, if you could look at the bottom of the ocean the way we look at, um, you know, the, the country as we fly across it in an airplane, you would see mountain ranges. You would see large expanses of flat areas. You would see deep trenches. Um, 
but all of these features, unlike the, the and you know, what creates the mountains in the Rocky Mountains, for example, is something called plate tectonics. The, the, earth, uh, the earth and the continents are moving. And that's what's creating those under uh, undersea mountain ranges as well. So we have a big one called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge that separates the uh, European plate from North American plate. And that, that literally an underwater mountain range is, is created by uh, essentially uh, Europe and North America sliding by one another. And then of course, in the Pacific, we, we have what we call subduction zones where, you know, well, the earth is, is literally going back down. And this, this is what's causing the volcanoes and the, it's called the ring of fire. You know, the entire Pacific rim is, is completely covered with volcanoes. And this is also why we have the biggest trenches on earth uh, along the Western Pacific Ocean. So yeah, the, the, the oceans have quite a bit of relief to them. You know, there are these huge mountain ranges in the middle of the Atlantic, as I said, and then there are all these big trenches and volcanoes, undersea volcanoes throughout the entire um, Pacific. And of course, it's it, it, when these plates slip, you get uh, something that's exactly like an earthquake at the bottom of the ocean. And that's what creates those tsunamis that we hear about once in a while uh, that you know can be very devastating. Okay, I know I'm kind of nerding out here, but in our pre-show preparation, I I was trying to float this idea because here we are, we're we're kicking off this series on the seafloor and and its importance, and I'm like perfect because the Gulf of Mexico is a really interesting place and it has all the features kind of emblematic of uh, the seabed more uh, globally. You know, we could use this as a as a as an example. And you were like, well, uh, hold your horses there, Tyler, because <laughs> the Mississippi River is extremely rare and, and unique on the planet. Um, would you kind of size up the Gulf of Mexico from a seabed perspective and talk a little bit about, you know, the, the rivers of North America, the Mississippi, of course, being the mighty, the mighty Mississippi. Uh, and it, you know, I guess rivers impact on the seabed, but specifically here in the Gulf. Yeah, so in, in a way, the Gulf of Mexico is like any other uh, ocean in the world in that it's got shallow areas and it's got deep areas. Um, but what really is important about the Gulf is the fact that it's essentially completely enclosed by both uh, the United States and then, of course, Mexico um, and on, on the uh, southwestern uh, part of it, and to a certain extent, even Cuba. And so if you think about it, the Gulf is unique because it's America's, it's America's sea. It's essentially completely um, enclosed by the continent of North America. And the other thing that makes it unique, but by the way, there's only one really large enclosed sea in the whole world, and that's the Mediterranean Sea. But what makes the Mediterranean and the Gulf really different is there's nothing like the Mississippi River that enters the Gulf, uh, that enters the Mediterranean. At one point, maybe the Nile is like that, but that's been so dammed and so much water has been diverted. That's no longer the case. But for the most part, the Mississippi River, which is one of the largest on Earth, you know, flows completely into the Gulf of Mexico. And as you might imagine, that makes the Gulf look a really different place than it would be without such so much of a big source. It's a source of nutrients. It's a source of sediments. And so the deposition rates of... Um, 
uh, of the material that goes to the bottom is much higher in the Gulf than anywhere else in the world. And the other thing, of course, is that you know that's why we have so much oil and gas on the bottom of the uh, Gulf of Mexico Ocean. It's the deposition of all that organic matter from that big river over tens and hundreds of millions of years that has accumulated over time. And so it's a big driver. You've probably heard about the dead zones. Yes. That's partly why we have the dead zone is the impact of the Mississippi River. And so, you know, basically what makes the Gulf different from any other deep sea environment or coastal environment in the world is this enormous influence of the, of the Mississippi River itself. And you know, the material loads, the, uh, uh, the, the prime and the productivity you see in the Gulf. You know, the, the, the Gulf is essentially the United States' gas station. Nearly uh, something like 95% of offshore oil and gas is produced in the Gulf of Mexico. Wow. It's, our, it's essentially our fish market as well. About a third of all the fisheries harvest in the United States happens in the Gulf of Mexico. And I, I can go on and on. You know, it, one of the most interesting things to, to get a hold of, and you can Google it and get it easy, is, is a map of all of the pipelines and infrastructure in the Gulf. You'd be stunned yeah. how, much, how much is on the, on the bottom of the Gulf in terms of uh, pipelines and oil and gas infrastructure. So it, it's, it's a pretty amazing place overall. It is, and I and I and I would reiterate that for the for the audience out there, uh, it is absolutely fascinating to to Google up uh, the images of maps of Gulf uh, of Mexico oil infrastructure. Uh, it is a spaghetti ball of pipelines. Uh, it's incredible the density of development of oil and gas facilities in the Gulf of Mexico, and and Dr. Manchani, that seems to be one of the things that you have focused on in your thirty year career. In, on the Texas coast, and I'd like to talk about that. Uh, in general, uh, is it, 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 I'm going to ask you about the trend or your assessment of the relationship between the health of the Gulf of Mexico, broadly speaking here, and the oil and gas development practices in the Gulf of Mexico. If you were giving it a grade, or we're kind of back to that teacher thing, if you were giving the oil and gas industry a grade on how uh, effectively they are at uh, exploiting the resources available in the Gulf of Mexico and doing it in a way that is not detrimental to the natural environment, uh, what kind of grade would you give them? Well, I'd probably give them about a B or a B plus. Um, you, know, you know, the reality, and I've had many conversations with the environmental managers and various guys at different oil companies over, over many years, going back to the late 80s, you know, mid 80s, actually, because I've worked off the California coast, I've worked off the Alaska coast, and now in the Gulf of Mexico, specifically on oil and gas issues. And, and the one thing that, you know, they always tell me is that Obviously, they don't want to be in a situation that creates a big environmental disaster and damage. No. Uh, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, you've got thousands and thousands of people working off thousands and thousands of rigs. And it, and it really boils down to, uh, you know, the, the, each individual worker on each individual rig and, and how well, you know, they do their job and they can... They have training, they, they, they care about the environment, yet they want to see good things happen. But occasionally, you know, it's just going to be human nature that an accident is going to happen. 
are some of those actions preventable? Sure. Do they have the uh, processes in place to prevent them? Yes. The problem is, it's you know, we're back to human nature. Actions happen, you know, and uh, and they are going to happen once in a while. And so, I can I can I, I can honestly say I, I don't think any oil company is purposely trying to mess up the environment. No, I mean it's not in their interest. It's not in anybody's interest. But you know, at the end of the day, accidents will happen, and uh, and that's the situation we certainly were in with the Deepwater Horizon. You all remember the um, the uh, Exxon Valdez, of course, that was another yes. big accident. So the bottom line is, when there's a big spill, it's it's almost always it's always an accident of one sort or another, and it usually relates to either it, it usually relates to transportation. The exploration and production accidents are, are much less common. The problem is, is when they happen, they're much larger. Because uh, if, if one tanker spills, it's it's only, you know, so many millions of, of gallons or barrels. But when there's a production or an exploration accident like Deepwater Horizon was, or remember the Ixtoc spill, yeah, the Ixtoc uh, spill which is the second 70s. largest disaster on record, also in the Gulf, mm-hmm. in the southern Gulf off Mexico, that was also a production uh, and exploration type of action accident. You know, they can be a lot larger because basically until you get it stopped, you know, that reservoir is going to just keep gushing. So uh, those kinds of accidents are a lot bigger than your typical transportation accident. The other kind of transportation accidents we see are pipeline breaks and pipeline uh, you know, ruptures, you know, that can happen. And again, they have a tendency to be smaller because uh, you, you can turn a valve off once you discover you have a problem and repair it. Right. Well, in this case of the BP spill, and I, and I appreciate your, uh, your, 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 your moderation in, in describing the industry and giving it good credit, uh, these production accidents are rare. They're subs- uh, the BP spill uh Certainly, no one intends to have this outcome. It it cost BP and and uh, the uh, operators of the rig and other responsible parties billions of dollars, more than fifty billion dollars. Uh, the fines alone were past twenty billion dollars. So economically, absolutely a disaster. Uh, I will point out that for the Gulf states, uh, the revenues derived from the BP spill. Settlement have uh, been used to great effect in many areas and have produced a lot of positive benefits. Uh, but l- I want to take you back, if you could, to April 20th, 2010. Uh, the rig exploded. Uh, I wonder when you found out about it and when were you called into participating in evaluating uh, the spill? How did that happen for you? Yeah, boy, boy, you know, that that was, uh, I'll never forget seeing the first images of, of the spill and, and the big accident, the fireball of the, of, 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 of the, of the rig on fire. It, it was pretty horrible, and it, it was apparent to me right away that there are a whole bunch of things that were apparent to me right away. Number one is there's never been anything quite like this before because you were in a mile deep water. And again, since I've been doing this kind of work since the mid-70s, believe it or not, you know, the, the history of my career is going deeper and deeper and deeper. Hmm. Um, you know, the industry was exploiting uh, deposits, oil deposits in shallow water, 
when I say shallow, I mean, you know, ten to uh, a couple of hundred meters, which is, you know, 30 to um, three, 400 feet. Okay. <laughs> you know, not, not for the longest time. And the history is always going deeper and deeper as their technology improved and as they discovered more and more larger reserves deeper and deeper offshore. And so there had never been anything quite like this in, in a mile of water. So the first challenge was going to be, well, first of all, your sample site is a mile beneath the surface of your, of your boat. That's going to be a challenge. And how are we going to work with that? And then there were things we just didn't even know existed at the time, like the deep sea plume. We had no idea that was going to be a big issue. And, and if you think about it, what it was, was um, I, I think the best example is, you know, have you ever bought a can of spray paint? Yeah. Well, what's a, what's a can of spray paint? You get this tiny reservoir of paint in the bottom of a pressurized can, and it comes out of this tiny little nozzle under high pressure, and it just sort of vaporizes or atomizes right away. Well, that's what was happening to the oil as it came out of the bottom. You, you had this tiny pipe, right? Yep. And you had this huge reservoir under very great pressure. And of course, you know, it, it's, it's actually hot. Even though the deep sea itself is like a refrigerator, it's about 40 degrees uh, Fahrenheit hmm. at the bottom in the water. You know, the, those reservoirs can be hundreds of degrees. Uh, wow, I didn't you know, know Because of the pressure, it, it gets hot. And so this, you know, very high pressure uh, oil, this oil is coming out propelled by natural gas uh, under very high pressure, and it literally atomized in the, in the ocean waters. And, and it got caught up in all that, what we call marine snow, and that's how it came back to the bottom. So I remember at first, everyone assumed all the oil would go to the surface. Right. And that's not what happened at all. Okay, can we, we pause? We discover those deep sea plumes until, for a few weeks later. And okay. in fact, I, we still don't know exactly how much of it got trapped underneath the ocean and how much it came to the surface. The best estimates are something like anywhere between 5 and maybe 30% of the oil never got out of the deep sea. So, um, so yeah, because in my, you know, the, the, the basic... Uh, you know, grade school understanding of oil and water is that inevitably shake the little, you know, shake your salad dressing as much as you want. When given enough time, you will have separation. The oil will go to the top. What you're telling me is that that those physics don't work anymore because of the atomization. What's going on there? Right. But that's exactly right. And at first, everyone was saying oil floats and there'll be no impacts on the bottom at all. And, and really through the end of May, even, I was hearing people saying that. Um, but what happens, as I said, it gets, it's under high pressure, it's propelled by gas, and the droplet size is very tiny. So the other thing I've studied is oil seeps as well. And you know, the, when, when a drop of oil comes out of an oil seep from the bottom, it's a, it's a millimeter or more in diameter, and that stuff just floats straight up to the top. But these droplets were on the order of microns, meaning it was 1,000 times smaller, and it literally was vaporized, atomized, and it, it, just, it just dissolved into the water, and it got caught up in, in that sedimenting material we call marine snow. Uh, 
and it just got pushed right back to the bottom. Hmm. Well, so, you know, we really didn't even attempt, uh, there was no attempt to try and estimate what might have been happening in the bottom until probably, um, I think it was late September. Uh, yeah, it was September and October, late August, early September. And when when the spill first occurred, I my phone was ringing off the hook for quite a bit. Again, because I'd been doing a lot of work on oil and gas issues uh, in Alaska off the West Coast, uh, in the Antarctic and the Arctic Ocean. And, and I knew, and, and most of the people I'd worked with back in the day were now in leadership positions in the federal government and in some of these agencies. And so, you know, it was basically like a reunion week almost because mm -hmm. I get to see all my old friends again who had worked in the 80s and 90s. The Coast Guard people. Uh, but, you know, at first I didn't want to get involved at all because I, I remember um, when the Exxon Valdez happened, it, I had a very hard decision to make was, was again to start going to Alaska and getting involved in that study. And I decided not to because... At the time, I was an assistant professor, and I, I didn't really want to get involved in oil and gas work at that level because, you know, back in the 90s, um, the laws were different, and everything was done under secrecy and under legal process. But in the year 2000, there was an important um, Supreme Court case called the Daubert decision, where all of a sudden... Um, you had to, more work, more weight was given to peer-reviewed science than these private hidden uh, legal briefs. <laughs> and so when I was first asked if I wanted to get involved, I said, no, you know, I, I, I'm a scientist. I don't, I don't want to spend the next 10 years in, in litigation and, and spending so much time on work that I could never talk about. And they said, well, it's changed now. You know, it's not like it was back in the Exxon Valdez days. In fact, we want you to publish your research as quickly as possible. Hmm. And because of its, if it's peer-reviewed science, it carries greater weight in the court of law. And so I changed my mind and decided, okay, then I'll, I'll do this work. Well, how so I was part of the, the team who planned the first deep-sea sampling. So how soon uh, the, the the spill starts on in April? It it yeah, runs unimpeded for for five months until uh, almost the twentieth of September. At what point are you on a on a research cruise involved on the site? Yeah, so so that didn't happen until um, early September. Um, you really couldn't get anywhere near the site until the capping process was complete, which didn't happen until the middle of July, as I recall. I'm trying to remember the exact date, something like July 10th, 15th, somewhere in that range. And um, up until that point, of course, it was a it was under the jurisdiction of the Coast Guard. Uh, they were controlling all the traffic out there. And even if you had a ship and you could get out there, you couldn't really um, get anywhere near it. It was the space was all controlled by the efforts to contain it and cap it. Right. And, you know, eventually they did drill those um, capping wells and relief, and, and they were able to close it off. And, and it wasn't until that part was done that we even started thinking about getting out there. And I think I might have got a call sometime in early August saying, well, 
The next step is to go out and see if there's any oil on the bottom. Because at that point, there had been reports of the deep sea plumes, and there had been concern that oil got to the bottom, but we didn't know how much or where. And so I helped plan those initial cruises from, from about, we had three different uh, research vessels we were using. And my, and my job was mostly directing from shore. Believe it or not, I actually never went out on a boat in 2010. But I had uh, teams of people I was directing who were out there. And we trained the people on uh, all three of the vessels. And we made sure the samples were collected the right way. And um, Okay. Let I me. that went on for about 45 days up through about the middle of October. Let me uh, let me ask a question here again. So uh, there's a suspicion by this point, by August, like, hey, there might be some oil pluming its way uh, onto the seabed. That's kind of interesting. Uh, and you mentioned that you got to go and take samples of the seabed. How do you do that? How do you take a sample of the deep seabed uh, in accordance with, you know, you the scientific uh, practices that you need for, I mean, what are you, how deep are, I mean, I imagine it's a core. I imagine you're taking a core sample. Is that right? Like, yes, exactly. Okay. Um, so, you know, what, what we use today is something called a multi-core device. And imagine having 12 um, plastic cores. Each core was, was about, um, 10 centimeters in diameter, which is only about um, four or five inches in diameter. But there are 12 of these, and we can take them all at once. And uh, the reason the cores are so important and the small size is so important is we were assuming that there would be a deposition of oil on the surface. And so we needed to be able to take a sample that would allow us to extrude it and look at fine layers um, of the surface sediments and so that we can find out if there was oil on the top and uh, if it had penetrated through the core itself and, and if there were any, any, any damage to the communities that might be living there. And you know, it's, it's very interesting because um, in the past, we'd used machines that weighed close to a quarter ton and we would add more lead weight to it because the, the weight of the wire to put a machine like that on the bottom was so heavy that the machine had to be heavier than the wire itself. But here we were working with a much lighter instrument. And so getting that light instrument down on the bottom and taking the sample without getting wrapped up in the material itself was, was actually a challenge. Mm. And so then the, we used this, uh, it, it was basically like a rope a neutrally buoyant rope we used to lower the machine. <laughs> and um, and that, that was a challenge, figuring all that out in itself. You know, how do we get a sample a mile deep uh, and still maintain the uh, vertical structure of the sediment so that we can look at it in very fine detail? Uh, that, that, was, that was actually a big challenge to solve initially. And it was, it was, a, it was a fun problem to solve. But it worked. We actually were able to get sediments where you could see layers in the sediment. Yeah, okay. And that was very important. Okay, uh, Paul, you got to just regale. Like, what does it look like? I'm just dying to know. Yeah, what's the did result? Did you get to look? Did, did these come ashore? And have you been able to just nerd out and, like, look at these bad boys up close? 
Oh yeah. So we we took well, like I said, the coring device. You know, imagine um, twelve. Um, uh, we used a we, we used a device that twelve of these plastic cores basically hooked up to one another. They go to the bottom. They come up to the surface. Now, once it gets to the surface, what we do is we extrude the sediment in layers. Uh, we slice the sediment. We store that away. Uh, we, we preserve it in different ways depending on what what analysis we're going to do. So, for example, all of the ones that we're going to get analyzed for oil and chemistry, those got frozen. All the ones that got uh, analyzed, that, that got set aside to just measure sediment properties like what percent mud or sand, those just got refrigerated. Then we had others where we we actually, we were going to look at the biology later. We actually poured formalin on top of that, which is a preservative. And so it kills everything, fixes it so it doesn't um, degrade. And we took that back later on. Some of the samples we actually were analyzing right on the ship. Uh, we were doing these toxicity measurements right on the ship um, because we, we, we couldn't bring that... You know, there was like a time sense that it would go bad if we didn't look at it right away. And so all the different kinds of samples for different purposes got, got preserved in different ways. And then the Makes stuff sense. That for, for the animal samples, that all got shipped back to my lab when we looked at it over the next couple of years. So, uh, Paul, when you were, after you guys had conducted these fields and field investigations, which uh, I assume went on for a period of time, uh, did the oil cause problems for the seafloor and the creatures in the benthic habitat? Yeah, so one of the things we use as an indicator of, envir of, of, of environmental quality is, is a diversity measurement. And diversity is the most sensitive indicator of change for a real simple reason. Whenever there's a disturbance, and it could be any kind of disturbance, it can be an oil spill, it can be a, a, a hurricane. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it, what it is. It can be a nutrient addition. The sensitive species will either disappear or be or, or, or reduced. The tolerant species will either stay the same or go down just a little bit. So that relative difference between sensitive and tolerant species is a, a change in diversity in the samples. And that is a very easy thing to pick up. And so we literally extract all of the animals that live in the mud, and we uh, identify them and count them. And from that, we get our diversity measures and diversity indices. And then by looking at how diversity changes amongst the samples, particularly with distance from the wellhead, we can identify the footprint of the oil spill. Okay, so now that you, we, you've explained the technique and one of the principal tests uh, that it's a location sensitive. You can look at these ratio of tolerant and sensitive species and the diversity in the samples. Uh, what did you learn? Yeah, we also add the chemistry in there. And what we expect is we expect to see as the contaminants go up, the diversity goes down. And that's exactly what we saw. And that first year, so when we first, uh, I think in, in, in October, September and October, we, I think we visited a total of about 179 stations. Okay, this is in and then, 2010. And we took three samples at every station, so that generated, you know, six, 700 samples. Well, this technique I'm talking about is incredibly labor-intensive and requires experts who can sit there and actually identify all of these little critters in the mud. And it's a, 
you know, it can take up to two weeks to analyze each sample. And so as you might imagine, uh, the lawyers didn't want to sit around and wait for three, four, five years before I could give them an answer by looking at all those samples. So what we did is we identified 58 stations in that first set of samples to look at uh, to develop an original uh, assessment of the deep sea impact. And when we did, we figured about, um, we, we figured two things. One is that oil was covering an area that was about 3,200 kilometers square. Now that's a, there's about two and a half square miles in a square kilometer. So that's an area of about a thousand square miles. But we could see with an area of about a hundred square miles, 50 square miles, it was basically devoid, devoid, devoid of diversity, devoid of life. And so there had been a huge area that had been really damaged. And that's what we discovered in our very first assessment. Um, and that took about a year or two to figure that out. And then, of course, we had the, um, we went back and we sampled twice more in 2011 and 2014. And we went back to just 38 of those stations. And what we discovered is by 2014, five years after the spill, there had been absolutely zero recovery in that area I'm talking about, meaning that diversity hadn't changed at all in the damaged area versus the undamaged area. Okay, let's take a second on that. I think that's really important. Uh, so the, if I can sum it back up, a thousand square miles where oil was deposited on the seafloor in the vicinity of the BP spill uh, site, the, the well location, and almost a wipeout zone of about 50 square miles identified in the first uh, one to two years after the event. Um, in 2014, reoccupying the stations you had previously looked at, or at least 38 of the 59, I think you said, uh, no recovery. Why would you, were you surprised that the, that, the, that the stations had not recovered, that there wasn't a, uh, a recovery of the biota and the benthic organisms? Or were, were you surprised or did you find that somewhat expected? Yeah, so I didn't think it was going to be recovered because I knew a couple of things that make the deep sea unique. Now, anywhere else that should have recovered within a year uh, easily in the shallow areas where we had experience. But the deep sea is different. It's, as I said, it's really cold and it's really dark. And for the most part, it's devoid of nutrients. Now, if you think about it, what else is cold and dark in your kitchen? It's a refrigerator. <laughs> and in fact, the, the deep sea is about the same temperature as your refrigerator. And why do you put your food in your refrigerator? Just so it keeps and it doesn't spoil, right? Because bacteria will eat it up. And the same thing, of course, would happen to oil in the deep sea. The bacteria eventually would eat it up. But one of the things we discovered over the decades I've been doing these kinds of studies is that one, bacterial degradation is a function of temperature, and two, it's a function of the uh, nitrogen available in the environment, you know, as, as literally as, um, as fertilizer to help them degrade the oil. And so in the deep sea, it's cold and there's not a lot of free nitrogen around. So I kind of was thinking that, you know what, it wouldn't surprise me if stuff sits down there for a really long time and never changes the oil at all. 
And that's exactly what we saw. We saw that uh, five years later, when we went back to those same stations, we saw virtually no recovery at all. Just like everything slows down. It's like when I'm making my exactly. sourdough bread and I want to slow exactly. my proof down, I put it in the fridge. Right. And so we it's were like time curious, still. how long will it take to recover down there? And you know what? We had a really great test case, and that was the ICTOC spill. Now, the ICTOC spill happened um, in 1979. And so in 2015, we were able to go back and sample sediments at the ICTOC site using the same techniques we use in the Deepwater Horizon site that allow us to look at layers in the sediment. And if that's true, then at some point we should see a layer of the old Ixtoc oil, and we can look and see whether or not there's been recovery there. And so we went and sampled in 2015, which was about uh, 35 years after the Ixtoc spill. And sure enough, at about three or four centimeters below the surface, which is about um, two inches, an inch and a half, two inches below the surface, we saw these chemical signals of the Ixtoc spill. And sure enough, in areas where we saw chemical signals of the Ixtoc spill, we could still see a loss of diversity in those sediments. Can and I, so, Paul, can I, go ahead. yeah, I just, um, <clears throat> for those of us that aren't aware of benthic communities, we're talking about uh, single-celled organisms here, yeah. mostly? Yeah. Polychaete worms, all kinds of critters. No, little, little, inver little invertebrates. You know, single-cell yeah. organisms would be bacteria, diatoms, fungi. So there's quite a bit like going that. on down there. This is a lot. There's yeah. a lot of life I'm happening. I'm talking about things that look like worms, shrimps, and clams. Okay. And snails. Uh, they're, they're, you know, the, the three major groups are crustaceans, which are the shrimpy-looking and crabby-looking things, the, um, the mollusks, which are like clams and snails, and, of course, the... Um, the, the worms, you know, like you have earthworms in your yard and garden. Right. Things called polychaete worms are a little different, but they have they have many many different um, legs on them compared to an earthworm, which doesn't have any legs at all. And so those three groups are the dominant things we're looking at. So I mean, like in the laboratory, did you like? Yeah. So we, like I said, we extract the animals from the mud, and we literally identify every single species, and um, yep. and we and we count them. Microscopes and, and forceps. Well, you know, and I were able to get a community profile. So, what you're telling us is that the impact on the seafloor benthic community is long lasting uh, based on the Ixtoc analysis. You said 35 years later, there was still a chemical signature present. Uh, and some indication of uh, impact on the on the diversity of species present. Um, I'm curious about the area around the BP spill. You said there was kind of a 50 square mile wipeout zone uh, based on those initial assessments you guys did in 2010 and 2011 in the first year or so after the spill. Since then, in the work that you've done and other university researchers involved in the BP uh, spill assessment, post-spill assessment, has the area of impact stayed the same, or have you found that the impact was larger or lesser than what you originally thought? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when by the time the settlement 
was announced again in 2015, we had to stop all of our work. And we still had about 100 samples we had never looked at, 100 stations worth of samples we had never looked at. And through uh, actually the beef he funded Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative, we got we got some funding to look at other samples we had collected back in 2010. Huh. And we doubled the number of stations. So we went from 58 stations to 116. And sure enough, when we looked at twice as many places, we found twice as many uh, damaged areas. So our current estimate now is that the area of, of severe damage was actually more like 100 square miles rather than 50 square miles um, along the bottom. And, and in a way that related a lot more to where we knew the oil was, we knew it was further. We just hadn't looked at the biological impacts further along. And so that, that was pretty amazing. And, and you know what, what it tells you too is that you know there's, there's this problem when, when you're in the middle of a legal process, you sometimes can't wait for all the science to be done. But the second thing it tells us is, is that, you know, we need different kinds of assessment techniques. So when I first started, we were very obsessed with, with uh, replication, um, meaning that we had to take many samples at one place so that we felt like we understood what, what the variability at one place looked like. Mm -hmm. So that if you looked at an impact in an unimpacted place, you, you would know whether there was an actual impact. But today we have different assessment tools. We have mapping ability. You know, today we have a, what we call GIS software, geographic information systems. Mm -hmm. And so what we do now is we don't necessarily want to look at a lot of samples at one place. You want to look at one sample at as many places as possible. And I think that's what we've proved. Huh. And I think it means that we can do these kinds of assessments more effectively in the future if we take samples in a lot of different places rather than concentrating on a, a few places where we take a lot of samples. Interesting. And I think we'll get better estimates of the, of the impacts if we do it that way in the future. Well, I hope you never get a chance to try out the better techniques because it means that we've had another one of these uh, deep water blowouts. Uh, yeah. But... Um, but I've got to think that the that the the scientific uh, research uh, protocols to try to sort out what this spill had done on the deep uh, sediments and the critters, the benthic creatures uh, around the spill, has got to be a complicated uh, question to ask. Uh, where the currents are, what direction the oil goes, how it's treated, what happens to micron-sized uh, atomized underwater droplets of oil that do not float to the surface. What did you learn about the dispersion of oil from the spill, number one? And number two, can you comment on what has been widely discussed about this spill was the ex extensive use of Corexit dispersant that was actually applied to the plume of oil jetting out of the bottom of the sea. Uh, what can you tell us about where the oil went, how it traveled, and how it was deposited, and what this dispersant may have done, or do you have any sense of that? Yeah, those are all good questions, too. So um, we discovered a whole bunch of things about the dispersant. One is that the dispersant itself was about was as toxic as the oil itself. We did toxicity studies in my laboratory on it, and, and that itself stunned me. I, I didn't realize that was going to be the case. And so when you added dispersant, you're adding another toxic agent. 
The other thing is, is the reason they add the dispersant, of course, is it makes the oil kind of dissolve. Right. Well, you know, that, that's the problem. Once the oil gets dissolved in the water, it's going to end up at the bottom. And once it ends up on the bottom, it's going to have these effects for, we think it'll have an effect in the Deepwater Horizon site for 50 years. Now, in the Ixtoc site off Mexico, we think it'll have an effect for 100 years. But again, here's where the Mississippi River plays an important dynamic role in the Northern Gulf. Because the Mississippi River is putting out so much sediment and uh, nutrients, it, there's higher productivity in the water column, so there's more stuff falling to the bottom. And so the deposition rates in the Northern Gulf are twice as high hmm. as in the Southern Gulf. And so we're still going to see these effects for 50 years at the bottom. Well, the problem with the Corexit is the Corexit helped put more stuff into the bottom as well because it basically dissolved it and it made it um, more easy to be trapped and, and sent to the bottom of the ocean. And so, you know, the, the negative thing about the, about the dispersants, I think, is that it definitely um, sent more pollution to the bottom than would have happened without the Corexit. But, you know, they were using it for good reasons. Right. You know, uh, again, they, they worked from April 20th all the way to mid-July to try and stop the flow from, from the broken wellhead. And, of course, you know, to, to be able to work on the surface, they needed the dispersants uh, to, for the safety of the workers who were working at ships at the surface trying to... Right cap the well so you wouldn't have a, relief wells you, so yeah. you know i understand the need for the dispersants and but but it is a trade-off because it does mean we're going to damage we're going to have greater damage at the bottom let's let's uh, and and i really appreciate that having an oil slick at the surface which could pen, potentially catch fire uh and having boats exactly. running through it where you're trying to drill uh a relief well uh is 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 understandable and you know the 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 water not reaching the surface and being moved by currents on shore is also preferable to the to the responsible parties because it's uh, well you can't see it when it's dispersed into the water column as you say and settles on the bottom so there are some I think PR reasons why you'd want to do it. Well, I'm I'm interested, Dr. Montani, if you or the other research team and and the folks who assess the BP spill and work have and I think continue to work on this. Uh, from many institutions along the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the oil in the food chain and in the ecosystem? Is there evidence that that the dispersed oil is uh, eaten, enters the food chain at a base level and moves up? What can you tell us about the fate of the dissolved oil that does not, in fact, settle to the bottom? Yeah, some of it, um, well, well there, there's a couple of things going on here. One, of course, is that there was oil at the surface slicks, there were oil uh, in the water itself. From what I can tell, most of the impacts in the actual water column itself disappeared rel relatively rapidly. Hmm. But there was certainly some oil that got caught in food chains. And, of course, there's still oil being transferred into the food chain from the bottom, you know, as we speak today, uh, as the fish goes down and eats a critter who's absorbed some of that oil in its skin uh, and, and it's because it's feeding and, and burrowing through the oil that's on the bottom of the deep sea. And so we know a little bit about that. Uh, probably a lot more needs to be done in terms of looking at it. 
But, um, you know, one of the things that Exxon Valdez taught us was that some effects in these higher trophic levels may not show up for a really long time hmm. because the manifestation of of oil getting into the food chain is typically on the reproductive ability of these. Um, uh, for, for Exxon Valdez, it was it was some fish and some birds. And for Deepwater Horizons, it's definitely going to be in the fish communities. You know, as 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 oil winds up in, in eggs of fish, for example, those, those eggs are not going to be as healthy. They're not going to have as high hatch rates. They may not high, have a high development rate. Hmm. And so, you know, we, we may not see some of the long-term effects for quite a while to come. And I, I'm not sure that we have seen them all. Um, I, I think we're going to have discoveries come up occasionally, uh, particularly on, on the higher trophic levels, the larger fish, uh, that we won't see for quite a while. Um, Paul, one thing that I just am... Uh you know, curious on, on a purely kind of connection level, but, uh, you talk about this aerosolizing plumage, uh, phenomena that was happening there, the uh, spray paint analogy, which I really like what it reminds me of. And actually the, I'm, I'm recalling the footage. They put a camera down there so we could actually watch this disaster happen on the seabed, uh, which has got, maybe that's a, a first for humanity. Uh, we get to uh, see it in real time as it happens. Um, but what I'm reminded of are those deep sea vents uh, that are uh, venting, I guess, super hot water uh, and other things. And there are communities of life that uh, have evolved very specifically near those areas. And I'm wondering if you uh, I, it seems like maybe there's a connection here between. Uh, I realize that there's, uh, you know, one is like a natural phenomena that happens, uh, you know, throughout the, uh, you know, around the globe. These there, there, there's evidence of different communities. Um, but Paul, I'm wondering, is is there any um, evidence of specific communities of, you know, I don't, I can't get myself to use the word critter. I can't do it. I don't know why. I don't. I, it's just organism. Organism. There, I don't like the word. Are there, are there community? Are there organisms that yeah. that'll feast on this oil? That are maybe. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. Yeah. Or or if you've seen because of the presence of this stuff that you're seeing, um, you know, like a specialized community uh, that is thriving. You know, potentially thriving or or doing well in that environment. Uh, yeah, so the, there are definitely bacteria that, um, you know, oil-eating bacteria in the Gulf of Mexico. And um, I, I'm going to kind of get into something that, 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 that might call, start a bit of a controversy because I actually don't agree with a lot of my colleagues about some of these things. And I, I had studied oil seeps off the coast of California for about 10 years as well. So, And I had done a lot of work on oil-eating bacteria myself. And... One of the things I discovered a long time ago was that the degradation of oil, and I mentioned this earlier, it, it's a function of two things, the temperature and also availability of nitrogen. So all life on Earth requires nitrogen where you can't create RNA and DNA, which is genetic material. You can't create, if you're even a bacterial cell, you can't create um, your, your cell walls and such stuff. 
So the bottom line is all life on Earth not only requires carbon and oxygen, it also requires nitrogen. There's absolutely and virtually no oil, nitrogen at all in oil. So you, you can't, if you're something living, you can't live on oil alone. You've got to have a source of nitrogen. And in fact, an early mitigation strategy for oil spills was to literally fertilize the ocean so that the, um, the, the nitrogen would stimulate bacterial consumption of the oil. Huh. Uh, I can remember there were studies like that done in the 70s, you know, when I was still a kid in, in the early 80s. And so, you know, as I said earlier, the problem in the deep sea is um, it's cold. It's really, really cold. It's about 40 degrees Fahrenheit, about uh, four, degrees, two, four degrees centigrade. And, and so that's going to inhibit bacterial activity. And also there's very, very little nitrogen in the ocean. It's huh. what we call ligotrophic. It's why the ocean water is deep blue uh, and clear. Uh, it's why it's not cloudy. It's because there's very little nitrogen, which means there's very little primary production. It's, for example, why we have the dead zone. Nitrogen coming from the Mississippi River stimulates these phytoplankton blooms, yep. which then die, fall to bottom, and eating all that uh, algae is what anaerobic the algae would cause the oxygen to disappear. Right. So you see the opposite happens in the deep sea. So the bottom line is that. Um, there are many people who, and there have been many articles written that say, yeah, bacteria played a huge role in consuming all the oil in the deep sea. And I, I just don't believe it. I believe that between the corexit, between this um, literally the um, volatilization of the oil, um, I, I think it just dissolved and dispersed very, very, very widely. I think got deposited on the bottom over huge areas. And that's where it went, and it didn't necessarily get eaten by bacteria. Interesting. So it is true that there are oil seeps in the Gulf, and there are oil-eating bacteria in the Gulf. But to think that the Gulf is immune from oil spills because there are oil-eating bacteria in the Gulf, I think that's just wrong. I just don't believe that. Hmm. It's a limiting factor, so you couldn't have the prop uh, the propagation of the of the right bacterial communities sufficiently large to take care of this volume of oil. I think is what you're saying. Um, well, you know, Paul, this is fascinating discussion. And uh, before we wrap up, uh, I would imagine that over the years in the scientific community uh, that's been involved in the assessment of the BP spill, that y'all get together from time to time, maybe conference calls or conferences. Uh, what's the uh, what's the state of uh, what's the state of the art understanding of of this event when y'all get together and talk about it is there a lament about the level of harm caused is there uh, a sense that gee we dodged a bullet maybe these things are what's what what when what's the shop talk among the professional research community when it comes to bp yeah i think you know for for me and and for the people i typically talk to i think a couple of things that really surprise us is we did learn new physics and new science with this, um, you know, the, what we call the marine snow event. You know, the, the way that the oil got put into these tiny, tiny particles and the way they behave so differently from what we thought would happen. Huh. And then how it got kind of mixed up in, in a natural deposition of organic matter that goes to the bottom and it fell to the bottom and the widespread effects on the bottom. I think 
I think that that was something that really surprised us, and we still have a lot of questions about. I think the other thing that surprised us was how quickly the water column itself um, recovered. Um, and it tells you a lot about the resilience of the Gulf of Mexico and even even the deep sea where I work. You know, in a way, when you consider how large the Gulf of Mexico is, even though 100 square miles uh, got, got decimated, maybe it got deposited over 1,000 square miles. You know, the reality is, is it's just a small part percentage of the Gulf as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the Gulf of Mexico is still uh, the productive America sea we always relied on it to be. And, you know, for the most part, it, it, it's, it, is, it is recovering. Many components are completely recovered. Others we're still unsure about. Um, and I think in general, the, just the total resilience of it is, is pretty amazing. The other thing that amazes us, and, and one of the things we really like to talk about, is that, you know, you know the way these huge accidents were always incredible experiments of uh, mitigating human activity. You hear the same thing today about the coronavirus, um, how because travel has decreased, how air quality has changed dramatically. Well, you know what? After Deepwater Horizon, they closed the Gulf of Mexico to fishing for three months. Do you know we had a huge mm-hmm. boom in in fish? In twenty uh, in, in 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 twenty eleven, huh. a lot of it. people think. So in fact, there was more fish in twenty eleven than twenty ten. Well, is that is that because oil is good for the environment, no. or is it because we reduced fishing pressure for three months during a critical three months, the spring and summer, <laughs> uh, when all the recruitment is going on for the next year class, right. and and you know it really. You know, when we see these big events, you, you saw the same thing after the 9-11 when air travel stopped for, for a week. You know, it, it's funny, when we limit human activity in a huge area for even a short period of time, we see remarkable changes uh, in global scale phenomenon that you never would have imagined. And it really makes you realize the enormous impact that humans have on all the processes in the entire globe, in, in the world, and you can see it at regional scales and, and global scales almost immediately when we have these huge um, natural, uh, I don't call it natural, huge experiments of halting human activities in yep. areas over time. I, I think this is one of the things that scientists love to sit around and talk about, the shop talk that the public never hears. <laughs> um, not on this channel. Because it's hard to prove, and, and the implications of what we're saying is horrifying. <laughs> it really is. Well, we, we, we take up a lot of space and we make a big dent. Uh, you know, we need to. I always think that wildlife management isn't wildlife management, it's people management. If you can leave these things alone, they're remarkably powerful systems, but boy, do we put a lot of pressure on them. Um, well, Paul, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to take us on a deep dive on to the Gulf of Mexico seafloor and to talk about the BP oil spill and the work that you and other scientists have been doing over the last 10 years to understand the impact. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. Paul Montagna. He is the Endowed Chair for Ecosystems and Modeling 
at the Heart Reachers Institute at Texas A&M, Corpus Christi, the Islanders, not the Aggies. Uh, Dr. Montani, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and uh, your insights into this incredible event. Well, you're welcome, and thanks for asking me to chat with you for a while. Appreciate the time. My father's Singing mama